Hey guys, welcome back to the first and last podcast on the internet uh, that takes video game criticism so seriously that I've got sports drink with me. That's the kind of shit we're doing today. Uh, my name is David. I'm the editor-in-chief at Zero End End, and I'm joined by my special guest, that boy Aqua. We've got Nolan in the house. What's up, man? Hi. It's doing good. I've... I've, I've dragged you into this, um, into this. This is your first podcast, isn't it? Technically? It is. It's my first time doing any sort of podcast and my first time on somebody else's podcast. Uh, which oh, is... I promise not to promise not to embarrass you too much. It's like Let's Plays without the video game. So, so I feel like it... I could work my way into it. You've <laughs> you're like, I've actually done, I've actually done several years to prep for this. Um, exactly. I don't want to brag, but I'm in the gym every day. Let's playing. Uh, look, the reason I brought you on is we're talking about something that, that you've talked about before. It's near and dear to your heart. Um, in this two-parter, we're going to be covering uh, one of the single best reviewed video games um, in recent memory, and then also one of the more controversial ones. Uh, we're talking about Arkham Knight uh, in the, the Batman Arkham series. Um, talk to me about like your experience with this game. Um, I know we talked about it briefly the other day, but give me like your what's your relationship to this um, this game like? Um, basically, as far as the Arkham series goes, like, since Asylum, I was on board with it. Uh, I remember, I actually wasn't interested in Asylum at all, but my father at the time bought it for me, because I was young at the, I, I don't remember how old I was. I, that, uh, came out 2009? 2008? Uh, I want to say, like, 2011, maybe. Something okay, like then I was, then I was probably, uh, like, 10 years old or something like that, so I've been playing it for a while, and then... Loved City, loved Origins, and when Night came out, I loved that too. And I thought it, yeah. I thought it was the best in the series. I thought they, there's no way they could have topped City and Origins, but they did. And then did. I watched, and... <laughs> I watched some reviews online. I was like, oh shit, this is yeah, not. Yeah, turns um... out you you had the bad take. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Um, yeah, it, it was a very controversial one when it dropped. I do remember that. And I think the main reason for that is that I had basically my only exposure to Batman has been through those games and through like the dark knight and the movies and whatnot i actually never watched batman as a kid like the cartoons and whatnot because they actually scared me um yeah it's fair that's so, fair wait, wait wait what specifically was it the bats like <laughs> it was um there was a show called the batman and it had like this really like um it had this really like weird version of the joker where he was like okay. i can't remember uh who voiced him but yeah and i just remember it kind of scared the shit out of me when i was a kid and so i didn't watch it and, and as far as arkham knight goes like i just had no issues because i i guess biggest issue would be um the arkham knight's identity which i i've been told that if you've read a comic was very obvious but for me i was sitting there i'd look at the um character profiles and it would say the arkham knight's height and weight and i'd be comparing it with other characters <laughs> and to be like is it someone we've met before yeah, yeah so i was i remember looking through the database and i saw cash you know the guy with the hook hand yeah yeah his stats are like very similar to the arkham knights and oh, I was like, oh he would have been a good pick and i was like oh maybe it's him like maybe he got all pissed off he's at in, Batman. he's in city and asylum yeah that's he's a good pick actually that's a good that's a good pitch and so um, i was actually theorizing who it could be yeah damn okay well now i'm now i'm like that that's a definitely a better pick um we'll <laughs> we'll talk about that and the ending in in part two but i guess to get started i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you about um probably one of the most prominent successful writers at dc that no that no one's ever heard of um and then we'll kind of go from there and and, and kind of work out how they got to making this this sequel so 
We'll start, as we always do, with our protagonist. Uh, Patricia and Robert gave birth to Paul Dini on August 7, 1957. Paul made his way through Stevenson's school on an arts scholarship and matriculated to Emerson College in Boston, where he completed his BFA on creative writing. Shout-outs to people who did a stud- studied a creative writing degree out there getting it. Uh, while studying, Paul worked on freelance animation scripts for Filmation. Filmation worked on everything from Star Trek The Animated Series to, like, He-Man... Uh, the Batman Superman Owl, which is probably just before your time, and then the New Adventures of Superman. These like it's hard to explain, but these were like um, you know how a lot of companies like Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network they they have these kind of cheaper animation studios that just pump out like a million cartoons a year. Yeah, these guys were like one of those studios that did that stuff, um, and so it was like a really great opportunity if you were any kind of creative to just get a ton of runs on the board. If you know what I mean, it's like. There's just projects coming out of the ass, and you just you're you're there pumping them out, trying to get them out. Yeah. Uh, and so that was where he got his start. Uh, and he actually he started working on He Man. Um, did you ever did you ever watch He Man as a kid? No, I didn't. Damn, it was probably I... before your time, but it was the cheesiest. Like you know, he he was this prince that that he had this magic power that let him get buff, and he became He Man, who was like this buff kind of superhero. Which is which is pretty fun, uh, and the Dini did eventually move on to, to Star Wars, uh, Transformers, and GI Joe. So he was doing a lot of kind of not comic book stuff, but comic book adjacent, if that makes sense. And I think the most notable part of his career, which is where we're getting to, um, is his uh, his work on Batman the Animated Series. Um, so working with Bruce Tim, he wrote quite a few episodes for that show and kind of set the tone um, of the program. Did you ever watch, or have you watched since the like that the animated series? Um, no, not not much. I've I've seen clips online and whatnot, but nothing, uh, not too much of it. It's sort of like it's referenced as like the inspiration for all modern Batman stuff. Oh yeah, like it set the tone, like the characterization. You had, um, you know, Mark Hamill as as the Joker, Conroy. and you had Kevin Conroy as Batman, and like yeah. it's just these iconic characters man and like it really rewrote the source material um and paul dini's actually the guy who wrote the episode um the joker's favor in 1994 and the joker's favor introduced harleen quinzel a new psychiatrist who began treating the joker and uh he eventually seduces her and she becomes the iconic and famous harley quinn so this guy we're talking about paul dini invents one of the 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 biggest characters in in the batman you know mythos to this day right huge She's got her own movies now, um, played played by Margot Robbie. Um, But Paul's, you know, he's this relative unknown at the time, and he just comes up with this idea, and between him and Bruce Tim, they they put it out there. Um, And, you know, Paul Dini's strength um, in those days was the ability to introduce fresh ideas into these existing properties without it feeling, like, kind of fan fiction-y or hacky. You know, I feel like sometimes, and maybe this is a personal taste thing, sometimes when it's like, you know, they're doing something new in Star Wars, it... It sometimes can feel a, not fan fictiony, but it, you know, it feels 
they're like, here's this new element that ties into this old thing. And you're like, yeah, I get, of course it does. Like, why wouldn't it? Nothing could just be a new idea. Yeah. Um, I feel like he, he escaped that pretty well. Uh, so on creating Harley Quinn, uh, when he was speaking with EW, uh, Paul Dini said, quote, uh, I pitched it to Tim, uh, I pitched it to Bruce, Tim and Alan Burnett. And Bruce was like, that sounds like fun. So I wrote the script and Bruce did the design of her in the classic Jester outfit and everything just clicked. We really liked how the episode came out. Not only was the main story a lot of fun, but Harley was a character who really seemed to pop. So the next time we did a Joker story and he needed a big gang of hench people, there was Harley. I think the audience just began to expect her. They liked her and thought she was funny. Arlene Sorkin's voice certainly gave a great deal of life and dazzle to the character. End quote. You know, she would go on to voice this character repeatedly in a lot of incarnations. Um, you know, in my mind, she's the, she is the voice of, of Harley Quinn. And I think it's fairly telling that two of the most renowned cartoon creators, Bruce Timm and Eric Radomski, repeatedly brought Dini in for all of these projects, right? He was their go-to man. Um, they sort of constructed, I don't know if you're, I, most people aren't aware of this, but they constructed this like DC animated universe for a while in the early 2000s where like, you know, the, the Batman, this various Batman TV show actually existed in the same universe as this Superman one. And they're all, you know, tied together by a Justice League show or something like that. Um, which, which kind of superseded the Marvel MCU stuff, um, but, but in animation, which is kind of interesting because I think a lot of the time now, uh, Marvel gets a lot of credit for being the first ones to be like, what if it was all in the same universe? Yeah. But DC kind of, they kind of started the trend and um, just happened to be that it wasn't in, in live action. So Tim and Dini subsequently created Freakazoid, um, which is a cartoon about a 16-year-old geeky boy, Dexter Douglas, um, and like every superhero, superhero that, that is created in sort of this early 2000s era, uh, Freakazoid's fucking weird, man. So <laughs> let me let me pitch you this superhero, and you tell I mean, me if you watch With a name like this. Freakazoid, my my expectations are low. Yeah, and also a name like Dexter Douglas, like Bruce Banner. You know the the two, like the double um, the alliteration on the name is great. So Dexter gains powers from a computer bug that's set off by a secret key sequence. Dexter is then absorbed into the computer and gains all of the information on the internet, as well as your standard like superhero abilities, like strength, endurance, and speed. Uh, but when he transforms into Freakazoid, he also like loses his sanity, which was the twist. So, you know, he's like this powerful force for like fighting crime, but he gets distracted or like forgets what he's doing all the time. Um, it's very weird. I, I, it's just, he had a base called the Freakalair, um, which was like a parody of the Batcave. Um, and it was built by his mute butler, um, Ingmar. And the Freakalair contains, this is, by the way, one of my favorite names of anything ever. Quote, a hall of nifty things to know. Okay. Um, which is great. And even a mad scientist lab. Uh, his greatest weakness, as he wants to explain to Armando uh, Gutierrez, is that he can be imprisoned in a cage with graphite bars charged with negative ions. Which That's like oddly specific. Very specific. Like, yeah, kryptonite, I get is like, but a cage with graphite bars charged with... Like, that is... <laughs> I'm, 
I did chemistry and physics, but I only kind of know what that means. Um, very specific and would be hard to trap a very quick, strong guy in there. Um, he also expressed an aversion to poo gas. So that's the kind of cartoon we're dealing with. Okay. Um, And so this is sort of one of Deanie and, and Tim's original superhero ideas. And so it's no kind of small wonder that as time goes on, they get pushed increasingly onto the DC projects because as a pitch, this was not necessarily the most successful, as you could imagine. Um, I can't tell. I've watched a few episodes in research for this. I can't tell if it's satire or not. You know, you know what it's like? It's, <laughs> it's got that like edgy 90s thing going on, but I can't tell if it's kidding or if they're actually serious about it. And I'm scared to find out. Yeah. Um, that... It's just, it's bizarre, man. And like, you know, it, it's clearly, it, you can tell that it's a parody of all the shows they're working. Like you can tell that like there's this obvious nods to like the Batcave and Superman yeah. and like references and stuff, but it's hard to tell if the actual show is taking itself seriously or not. Um, but the, I guess the, the point there is that Dini and Tim once again have that ability to like manipulate these comic book tropes um, and are like really talented in, in the exact thing that they do together. Yeah. Um, and they kind of keep Deanie in the DC loop. This happens a lot in this era where it's like, if you write one really good book, they just kind of bring you on to everything. Um, so in the early 2000s, Paul Deanie worked on comic books and a handful of other animated shows. Uh, he eventually did work again with uh, Bruce Tim on Harley and Ivy, which was a limited run series for DC in 2004. It's actually yeah. extremely good. It's sort of a spinoff from the, the animated series. Uh, he wrote a lot of... Actually, Paul Dini wrote a ton of Batman, like, one-shot comics while Grant Morrison was doing his, like, huge, languid seven-year run of Batman. Um, it was this really weird thing where they just gave Grant Morrison the mainline comics for, like, seven years and then everyone else was writing one-shots. Uh, but when Morrison concluded his uh, run with Batman R.I.P., DC shuffled all their writers around and Paul Dini ended up running two Batman comics. Uh, he did The Streets of Gotham and Gotham City Sirens. And this particular area of his career is kind of tricky to pick through, right? I should point out that he worked a lot in a short amount of time, just based on like his uh, his credited uh, his referenced credits. Um, 
he did things like the the DC Weekly Series Countdown. Um, he wrote a movie called Ninja Team Gatchaman that never saw the light of day. Um, he did a Madame Mirage series. Just a ton of like really weird fringe DC properties. Yeah. Um, he even went into the route of like um, trying to like uh, I guess bring animation to the people right he launched this weird website with these two characters uh super rika and rashi um, which was an animated show that he made every week but where you could you could like log into the site and use their very rudimentary animation tools to make your own stories which was huge in that era um i remember that as uh, that stuff as a kid for sure like you know you'd you'd go off to school and you'd have these like flash filmmaking tools that were all you know in browser and stuff like that um but this brings us to about 2007 or so and sort of the start of what's going to happen next and, and why we're talking about all of this. So Dini has an impressive career already. I don't think that goes without saying. Uh, while never reaching the heights of contemporaries like Frank Miller or Grant Morrison, uh, Dini is one of DC's most consistent getting it done writers. And these are the guys who, they, you know, they're not going to get the, the huge credits. No one, no one remembers Paul Dini's name that isn't a diehard fan of DC, but... He's one of their workhorses that has just produced so much amazing material for them. So in spring 2007, when Edios obtained the rights to make a Batman game, DC Comics approached Paul Dini. He seemed to be the man who could take anything and adapt it to the correct property that they needed. Uh, and Dini kind of points out to them that up until that point, there are very few Batman games that were based on original ideas. They tended to either be adaptations of existing properties, um, so like movies or, or, or direct adaptations of comics. There was a few Flash games that did that as well. Yeah. Um, but Edios ended up signing with Rocksteady Studios, at the time a small, fairly unknown British game studio, uh, and they decided to bring Paul Dini on to write the main story for the game. Dini worked closely with Rocksteady and had already suggested... Uh, Dini worked closely with Rocksteady, and they'd already suggested this idea of setting the game in the in the asylum um, for a lot of reasons, chiefly technical. Um, yeah. I think it, from a scale perspective, it seemed like an achievable goal, um, but also it was pretty ripe with opportunity to explore like a lot of the rogues gallery, um, which you know you do see in that final product. Um, Dini's story centralized the Joker's relationship with Batman, um, turning out to be a really really great fit for the gameplay and the concepts that the team were already working on. Uh, and, you know, I, th I think, and this is kind of speculation, but I think the reason that Paul Dini was a really good fit here is that, you know, his experience writing the relationship between Joker and Batman, um, and particularly Harley Quinn as well, like, he's the guy that you would get if you were trying to adapt them to a different medium. Like, yeah. if they had to do something different with it, he's the guy that you'd probably hire. It's weird to me that they don't get him involved in more of their, like, live-action stuff. Well, and it seems um, like it would make sense, too, because as you mentioned with things like freakazoid like he very much had a good understanding of the comic book tropes and whatnot and clearly that's what arkham asylum was going for was kind of that that mix between realism and i guess comic book style and so i think having someone like that who obviously understands comic books and the tropes and all the characters that are involved in uh batman's rogues gallery i think is super cool Exactly, yeah. I mean, he's like, you, you couldn't get a better person for this job, in, oh, yeah. in my opinion. Um, and so it's, it's a little coincidence with Dini on the script. Um, they, the development team decided to bring back Conroy, uh, Hamill, and Sorkin to reprise their, their roles as the three key cast members of the story. And this is where the lightning in the bottle starts to happen. 
After 21 months of development, uh, 60 people at Rocksteady completed Batman Arkham Asylum, which released on the 25th of August 2009. So you were right, it was 2009. Um, this game blew critics away. It, it somehow captured the soul of the best Dark Knight stories while giving the player a sense of power and vulnerability. The writing and gameplay sort of perfectly complemented each other, and the voice cast turned into one of the best performances of each of their respective careers since the animated series. Uh, the, <laughs> the game sold incredibly well. Um, tr guess how many units it sold in the first two months of its release? What, like 800,000? 2.5 million. Oh my god. Yeah. It, this this like, game was gangbusters, man. I, I, I knew it was popular. I did not know in the first two months it did that well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think it was, like, in part, it was a really, really good marketing campaign. Oh, yeah. Um, but also, in part, like, it, it just, per, it just it permeated the culture. I don't know. It, something about it. Um, particularly at that point, like, you know, 2009 was a weird era for this kind of thing because... Unless you'd hit, unless the marketing hit you directly, there's chances that you just don't find out about find out about this stuff for a long time. Yeah, you know, you, you you've this was before every single game release was talked about extensively, um, you know, in every forum or you know, like before you saw these trailers at E3, it was kind of like you found out about games either through because you were a hobbyist and you like you know read the magazines, yeah. Um, well, they just kind of came out. You saw them on the shelves, but they did such a good job with this marketing because they had Warner Brothers money that it just kind of fell into place. Um, and as you can imagine, like ac the accolades for the acting and the story and the gameplay followed pretty quickly after. Um, I won't go through all of them because there's literally too many to list here. Yeah. Um, but it was praised for everything from its writing, combat, and stealth, um, and even picked up a handful of awards for things like sound design um, and graphics and style. Um, I don't know if I... There were some awards around the sound design stuff that I was like, I don't know if I necessarily agree with, but like for what? the most part, oh, there was a few where it was like technical achievement in sound design, which is normally like saved for when someone does something new with the tech. So like The Last of Us Part Two won some awards for some of the physics sound stuff they did and like the, the glass breaking physics. And this game won a similar one, but there isn't really a lot of physics in the game, so I don't really understand, like... Yeah, just some stuff where it's, like, it's clearly early game... Early game award stuff, where, like, we need, need to give it to someone, and that game slapped. Um, yeah. That's kind of my takeaway. The gadgets, I mean, they sound good, though. Oh, the like, the grappling hook sound is still, like, a... It's so good. <laughs> so good. I love the, um... The, the batarang, like, the... Shink! As you throw it. Oh, it's a beautiful sound. Or the explosive gel. The explosive gel, so you know, that's, that's weird. The explosive gel was like, was a, was a mechanic or like a, a thing they introduced that then just like found its way back into the comics, um, which is kind of interesting to me. Like this game was so popular that it, much, much like the animated series, it started to inform the source material and this, this explosive gel starts to appear in the comics as well, which is pretty cool to me. Yeah. Like I think it's really cool. But obviously with this success, the studio starts working on a sequel like straight away. Um, turns out actually earlier than everyone thought because they knew they wanted to continue the story. The first game actually includes a secret room containing blueprints and concept art for the next game. Yeah. And no one discovered this. It was, it was actually until six months after the game was released that Rocksteady themselves revealed the secret room. 
because uh, they'd hidden it so well that no one could find it, which is fucking funny to me <laughs> that they're like, guys, here's this secret room. It's going to be great. Someone's going to find it. And they're just like, hmm. <laughs> you can imagine them sitting there at month five being like, no one's found it yet, huh? <laughs> that would be so stressful to me. Well, even when I like knew where to go, because I remember sitting there, you know, at my friend's house, like shitting my pants because we found this, like all these blueprints for Arkham City and whatnot. And like when we were looking up a YouTube video on how to get there, like I still, I, I guess I placed the explosive gel wrong because you have to place three uh, different sprays on there on the uh, same wall and i and i found it kind of weird to get to and fun fact i believe it's not in the return to arkham remaster oh uh, interesting ps4 either that or my 10 minutes of bashing my head into that wall just (laughs) didn't gave up result in anything yeah okay interesting that wouldn't surprise me because it was one of those things that they did without really asking warner brothers so we'll talk about it we talk about the marketing campaign for arkham city but like it's sort of not a cool move for the studio to put something like that in without telling the publisher. Like, it's yeah. it's not... No, I'm sure no one got in trouble for it, but it's kind of like, guys, this isn't... That's not how this works. Like, you can't just sort of sneak that shit in. Um, these days, it's a whole different story where everything has to be part of a franchise. Like, you have to always be seeding the next thing. Yeah. Back then, it was just kind of a faux pas to do that without getting permission, which which I kind of love for Rocksteady. It's like, it's like kind of their... Um, their rockstar moment, I think, where they just like they go out of their way to do something kind of cool. Um, but obviously, with this room, it led to rampant speculation. Um, and uh, there's an end credit scene too, where either Scarecrow or the Killer Croc survives um, and sort of floats off the off the island, or, or I think the hand comes out to yeah, Bane does whatever too. That, yeah, um, which again is planting that the concept for a sequel. Uh, but so pretty quickly in February 2009, um, after a bit of a break, the studio got to work on Arkham City, the sequel. Uh, Paul Dini returned to his role um, and committed to raising the personal and uh, the story stakes of the narrative. Where Asylum confirmed the structure and format of the series from a gameplay perspective, Arkham City presented a unique opportunity to create a game where you experience what it's like to be Batman in Gotham City. In speaking with uh, Game Astura, Paul Dini described the process for the Arkham games as follows. Quote, Somebody always has a better idea on how to, pro- how to approach a scene, so you have to be open to that and very, very fluid. So I work with some terrific writers and designers. I want to give a shout out to Paul Crocker, who's our head of story on the Batman games. And he's really amazing and shoulders a lot of the burden as far as the writing of it. Every time we do a game, I sit down with him and we and with the gang in London and we come up with the ideas. I go off and write a treatment and then they break it down as far as scenes and everything. It's very collaborative and much more so than a movie because you're writing for, you know, a lot of people are going to be doing a lot of things to determine the stories you're telling throughout the game. It's more than just our story. End quote. I think in general, the impression I've come to having read way too many interviews with Paul Dini and Dax Jin, who was the marketing manager at Rocksteady, and particularly Sefton Hill, um, who was the game director, is that the way that this team works is they kind of settle on a scope, and then at each stage of the the kind of writing process or the story development, the, the sort of whatever concepts they're approaching or suggesting has to fit within the scope of what they've already decided as far as, like, the technical stuff, yeah. um, which is kind of interesting because, like, a lot of a lot of the time what happens is... The, the writer for the game, uh, well, this is how modern studios work at least, is someone who's writing the game story will be given, okay, we need you to write these 10 scenes or we need you to write this, you know, this bank of dialogue or whatever. And they'll write it and then 
it'll go away and the game director and whoever's in charge of making those decisions will then adapt it to suit what they need. Like it's sort of a lot more um, vertical, whereas it sounds like with these guys, it's pretty horizontal. Um, but the obvious biggest change here is that in Asylum, this whole pro- the, the whole game was limited to being on the island, um, whereas in Arkham City, um, there's this portion of Gotham that's cornered off that you can kind of play in. It's a much larger space as well. Yeah. Um, and so once this decision was made, Paul Dini and Crocker pitched ideas for the central thrust of the story. Um, they wrote a few treatments for these ideas, returned them to the, to the design team, and uh, Crocker then spent the time to break it out into scenes and gameplay segments to understand how and if these ideas could actually work in execution. Uh, I'm highlighting this in particular because the way Sefton Hill discusses Arkham City's process makes it sound like that Paul Dini is this like bridge between the game development ideas and these like OG comic book things. See, he's the guy where they're like, okay, well, we can only do this in the game. What, what can you tell us from the comics that could do that? Or, um, you know, the, there's, a, there's a big twist in that game, which is around the, the Joker's health. And they went to Dini and they were like, how do we make this work from a story? Like, how do we, what's, what's the deal here? We kind of have this idea. How can we work this in? Um, and so it seems like his background and connections, and as you said before, Nolan, like his huge knowledge of this universe of the DC yeah. kind of mythos made him like the perfect middleman. Um, and he was able to take the best of both spectrums and combine them. Um, and Again, some of this is sort of speculation because you have to read between the lines of what these guys are saying. Um, but here's, here's uh, Sefton Hill, uh, who was the game director, talking about the plot of the game um, to The Guardian before its release. Uh, he said, quote, uh, We did know right at the start. Uh, Paul Dini flew over right at the start of the development with a guy from DC we work with very closely, and all of us kicked around ideas. We knew exactly where we wanted it to go, without getting into spoilers, right up to the end. We knew the major plot points, and as the game developed, we filled out the journey from there. So we started the game knowing five or six main beats, and the rest is down to the development process. There's a lot of stuff in the game which, if you play through it a second time, will make more sense the second time you play it. End quote. And he's obviously very dancing true. around the Joker stuff yeah. very, very nicely. Um, did you have that experience going back to it? Like, was it absolutely? I, I <laughs> it was so cool. They teased it like basically from the get-go like the first time you see him and it was and i found it neat because i've played arkham city probably like eight or nine times mm-hmm. and i feel like every time that i play through it i notice something that wasn't there before that kind of hints at the big twist and mm-hmm. i i think it's i think as far as the twist go the tw- the twist was done in, in my eyes expertly because they, they so, literally put it right under your nose it's so good man and it's so like you don't you don't know yeah it's it's you don't notice it and then the second you have the context it's it's so cool to go back it's and you're exactly, like how did i miss this oh it's yeah it's exactly how sto- like twists in story should work like all yeah. of the all of the exposition for it should be seated but until you know the twist it's it's just sort of additional peripheral information um so good so good the the one scene that i'll never forget is where harley's like oh it's you there's that i can't remember which scene it is but it's so obvious that she thinks it's the other, she thinks yeah. it's Clayface or the Joker or vice versa. And that was when I was like, oh, something's going on here. Like, that was when I was like, something's up the first time playing through and then going back and replaying that scene. I was like, damn, these guys are on their shit. Um, and what was cool is that Clayface was in Arkham Asylum. Yeah. Uh, he had it's, that. Uh, yeah, it's so good. He, yeah. he was a little Easter egg. There's another so one. So it's not even I... a matter of 
working in, you know, how are we going to do this in the story based on, you know, your knowledge of the comics, but like even based on characters that have already been established in Arkham Asylum. Which is why it was so weird to me. Which is why the Arkham Knight reveal was so weird. We'll talk about it more in part two, but like, oh yeah, there's there's so many other opportunities that they could have done that cool, like you know, pull the rug out from under us in Arkham Knight. That they've got so much to work with that they just never tap into. But um, as we'll learn as we go a bit further into this story, maybe there's a reason why they couldn't. Um, so the uh, from what I can tell, Arkham City's development was challenging and long, but relatively smooth. Um, similar to Asylum, DC kept their distance as did Warner Brothers, letting the team do the work uh, as Rocksteady scaled up their staff during the last year and a half of development to get the game across the line. The game's biggest strengths were born from the slight reimaginings of existing characters. We meet an older Robin with this shaved head and a modern-looking suit. Uh, one of my favorite tidbits is uh, uh, Ken Muftik, who was a senior concept artist, um, has talked about this a little bit and, and why this is his like favorite Robin. Um, and he kind of talked about this idea of like, you know, we, we gave him a shaved head because we imagine that this kind of incarnation of Robin in his free time, um, you know, he, he probably is like going out and doing cage fights and stuff to keep his, his, uh, his you know, keep his edge and stuff like that. He's this guy who's going to put himself in increasing danger. And I just love little details like that, that every kind of, you know, every costume decision and every choice they're making, they've like thought about how the world has shaped that to come to be, you know? Yeah. Um, it wasn't just like, let's give him a shaved head because it'll look different. It's like, okay, but like, what would the reason be for that? And how would that fit into the character? Part of the reason is also they didn't have great hair physics, but very true. <laughs> but it's like that, it's again, that, that combination of gameplay and story where they're like, okay, there's a, there's a gameplay or a technological limitation here. How can we work around it? Which is like, I, uh, it's what these games do tremendously well. Uh, you can see this deliberateness with all of the characters. Every minor detail integrates with efficiency, building this complex, realized impression of a functioning, existing world. You get to see these great relationships between existing characters. Um, I'm highlighting these details in particular because when we discuss Arkham Knight in the next episode, we'll be addressing where maybe some of this doesn't take place um, and then the opposite where it's taken to its extreme. Now, on release, Arkham City was the fastest-selling game of all time. It's been beaten since, but at the time. Uh, it shipped nearly 2 million units in its first week and a few months. By the way, 2.5 2 million was how many the first game sold in its first two months. Two months. This game has beaten it in its first two weeks. That um, blows my mind. Yeah, a few months later, it had sold more than 6 million units, um, <sighs> which is just outrageous. Um, at the time, weirdly, City's primary competition was Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3, which is a weird thing to think about. Three? Um, yeah, I think so. Oh, I thought it was two, because when you mentioned like video game records, I thought for a while Modern Warfare 2 had held the uh, record for um, fastest-selling video game in like, the first... Oh, uh, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't saying that it was... The, sorry, I didn't mean fastest-selling. I meant it's a literal competition at the time of release, like the oh, game okay, that was yeah. trying to beat in that kind of calendar year. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, but you're right. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 was, yeah, um, was beating it up until that point. Um, but they were, trying to, they were trying to beat COD 3, uh, Modern Warfare 3 that holiday season, um, which they managed to beat in the first 12 months of sales. Uh, and this is fucking absurd to me. In the first year, they sold 12.5 million copies of Arkham City and oh made some, somewhere in the ballpark, and this is an estimation, of $600 million, um, which is just truly outrageous i'm now um, no longer surprised that arkham knight looks as good as it does when they're making that kind of money 
they had a lot of cash behind them. Um, on the game, Steven Totillo um, for Kotaku wrote the following, and I think this perfectly encapsulates the, the way this game was received. Quote, Zoomed into Arkham City, there are very few modern gaming experiences that are superior to playing as Batman in Rocksteady's second Dark Knight effort. Dynamic, exciting, full of fun characters, stuffed with things to do, and built upon gameplay that is so good that it shines even when the bait of plot development and ability upgrading is removed. Arkham City is a magnificent game that merely risks, as far as Batman games go, being unstoppable. Unquote. Untoppable, rather. I can read. Um, This is also the game that generated the famous line from Greg Miller. Um, Shoutouts to all of my game crit nerds out there. Uh, do you know the, the infamous line that, that his review spawned from, from this particular video game? Um, no, actually. I, I know of Greg Miller, and I, I used to watch a lot of his IGN reviews back when he was with them. Mm. But uh, no, I don't remember exactly what it was. He, um, he was the one that infamously said that the game uh, made you feel like Batman. He's the guy? He's the guy. He's the feel like Batman guy. Oh my god. Yeah, so... <laughs> It's 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 followed him around ever since, which is he must funny hate that. Yeah, he's not a big fan. Um, he's not a big fan. Like he's right, but he's right. Yeah, and also he's an incredibly talented journalist. But it's tough that that's yeah. what stuck. Um, yeah, so he's the he's the feel like Batman guy, and he's not wrong. But like, what a tough what a tough meme to to get stuck to you for the rest of your working right? career. Like whoever mm-hmm. the guy whoever wrote the review for uh, Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire and said too much water. Yeah, that guy's got to hate the internet. Yeah, yeah. Which again, like, it's a fair criticism. Um, yeah. And and as as you know, I feel like Batman is also like a really good way of describing what's happening. It's just uh, the, the internet's awful. Um, and and I think outlets like IGN happen to attract the lowest common denominator, and unfortunately, that means uh, that these kinds of things happen a lot. Yeah. Um, which is tough. Um, and yeah, I know it's trite, but I think Miller was on the money. Um, the developers set out to communicate what being Batman in Gotham should feel like, at least you know, impressionistically, and I think they achieved it. Well, and that's, um, a, and that's what a Batman game should be. Like You should yeah. feel like you're playing as Batman. And, and I so... think the, the, the funny thing, man, is like, you know, with superhero games, it's really hard because what makes a specific superhero or comic book character feel like them, like, or... or like, it, it, uh, Super, Superman games have been historically bad because it's hard to make a good game where you fly around and feel like you're actually Superman. Yeah. Some of them have come pretty close, like the um, 64 and then uh, the some of the DS games have been okay. But, like, it's tricky because flight is a weird thing to simulate, whereas, like, Batman's just limited enough in his abilities that if you can give someone the impression of feeling like this predator and, and this, like force of nature that's the thing that matters you don't have to directly kind of be one-to-one oh it's like in the comics you know yeah and batman is a little more um i think in his abilities he's a little more relatable i would say i don't mean relatable in the sense that i jump off a fucking building and start gliding but i mean that mm-hmm. like i i can see myself throwing a batarang you know i can i could see like the moves that he's doing and whatnot like you could see that in real life to some extent but with superman it's like i couldn't even imagine what it's like to fly or to shoot lasers Mm. out of my eyes and so i think that that kind of yeah and and that's sort of what nolan tapped into in his his trilogy as well as like batman can be anyone that's sort of the point of him um 
it, it, it pales in comparison to how well Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films tried to capture that idea that like Spider-Man could, could be anyone. Um, but I, I think, yeah, he's an interesting character to want to adapt. And I think they did a phenomenal job. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the, tr- the tricky thing is, and we might talk about it a bit next, next episode, but there was this talk of this sequel to the Arkham series that sounded really fucking cool to me, which was like this kind of open world, post-apocalyptic style game set in Gotham where you're playing as like Damian Wayne. Um, and it's kind of, um, they, they were talking about it, styling it similar to the, the Mad Max video game where oh. it's like, you know, you kind of go from area to area and it's sort of this desolate kind of version of Gotham. And it sounded really cool and interesting to me because it was like, it, you know, complete reimagining of this, of this setting. But then you look at what they did with night and, and how conclusive they wanted that to be. And I'm almost like, I wonder, cause they've got that new game coming out that's set in the same universe. Like Gotham Knights. Gotham Knights, which is sort of this um, sort of a Destiny style MMO looking thing, um, which is certainly a choice. Um, Look, certainly... I don't, I don't mind the choice. I just think, you know, allow me to uh, get on a high horse for a second. I think people mm-hmm. are overreacting about it. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's gonna. I have faith in the in the uh, developers. I don't really have. Uh, I think people really get turned off by damage numbers and stuff like that because they mm-hmm. assume that it's going to be some sort of like um what's it what's that model called the destiny model um yeah like the looty shooty no what's yeah it, it's called MMO. something no it's um <laughs> son of a bitch it's where they like they keep rolling out free content um, oh games of service games of service yeah and and yeah. i can see where that worry comes from but i th- think I, I feel like they could they could do a good job as long as they don't fall into those um holes and uh, i don't think i don't think they will but no either way i just, I just want to like whip around gotham on a on like the on a biker's back girl like that just right? sounds like fun yeah that just sounds fun to me um yeah i i, I think yeah the the concern well so the the, the concern makes sense to me but i don't necessarily share the same reticence just because of things like damage numbers well and they've Um, said on they've gone on record like on twitter and whatnot and they've said like oh we're not doing that it's not going to be games as a service yeah it could just be like an rpg more yeah which i don't have a problem with i i'm a giant rpg nerd i've just finished replaying wasteland 3 for the fourth time i'm not a huge rpg guy but i don't mind them i i Mm. just yeah it, it I guess also looking at YouTube comments for seeing how few people feel about the game is like probably the worst thing I could do. <laughs> well, people are very rational on the internet, Nolan. So I don't know what you'd be talking about there. <laughs> yeah, but they totally yeah, even they... the even the top comments though seem pretty concerned about it. But yeah, I have faith. I think pe- that's just what people do, man. Um... And sorry to go on a bit of a tangent. I, I want to mm. know how would you feel about getting another Arkham game? With the same combat, stealth, yada yada. Suppose, hopefully, no Batmobile. I don't really know why they're not doing one every two years. Like they should have just gone with the Assassin's Creed model, in my opinion. It just been like, okay, we'll do one every two years. It'll be a different Batman one shot each time. We'll just like recreate a different comic book. Like I don't understand why that isn't the model they went with. I just think they'd be printing money. Um, they will do it as I... do yeah. it as like an episodic games of service thing, where it's like every year we release another you know, main story campaign. So I don't know. I, that's what I thought they were going to do. Um, I wouldn't, I think I've, I've had my fill of this type of game. I think replaying yeah. Spider-Man PS4 
has solidified for me that I think I'm done with this stuff. Like when I beat Miles, Miles Morales, I was like, all right, I'm good for now. I'm good on this, this particular Arkham genre. I'm okay, I think. Um, yeah, I, I don't... I didn't get that same feeling when I played Spider-Man PS4. I didn't really feel like it was an Arkham game. I felt like it was more... It's a superhero action game, so there's going to be an overlap regardless of how unique it is. But I feel like, especially with combat, where it saw the most comparisons, I, I felt like Spider-Man, it was more you were focusing on like individual enemies, like one at a time. While in Arkham, you are like a fucking pinball, just bouncing around the room. And Yeah, it's and also it a different... Like it was, it's it's more like Devil May Cry, where it's like you, the goal is to be keeping people off the ground. Yeah. Depending on, like, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a bit different. Mixing but... in gadgets and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's what I was asking, because I, once I had uh, replayed all the Arkham games over the course of the last, like, year or so, I, I realized that I, I don't think I want another Arkham game, because I was thinking that too. It's like, why would they go in this RPG-like direction and... I'm kind of thinking as much as I may not um as much as I'm skeptical skeptical about it um kind of off the bat I I feel like I don't want another Arkham game because I think they've sort of exhausted that formula they there's not much more that they can do to improve the combat or stealth at least in my eyes and I've had lots of conversations about it with my friends and whatnot about like like what more could yeah they can always do a different story in a different world and whatnot but traversal you already move like a speeding bullet in night I mean, stealth and uh, combat, it's like, I don't know how you could improve on that because they've basically perfected it in my eyes. I, I completely agree. I think with Knight, they, it, perfecting it is the right word. Like, it is just this polished fucking mm-hmm. unit of game. Yeah, it really is. And yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know what, what, it's kind of like um, the Assassin's Creed series some, sometimes where it's like they did that one thing and they did it to the point where it was like, okay, this is so polished, but now there's nothing left to do, so let's do something different, um, which is fine. You can do that. But but the issue is now is everybody's saying, fuck, go back. <laughs> well, I feel like that's what's happening with the Arkham series. It's the same yeah. thing. With like, I guess we're going to try something new. And everyone's like, no, this isn't what we asked for. We want the old stuff. But then when you make the old stuff, there's going to be another group of people that are saying, hey, try something new. We've seen this before. Yeah. And so I feel like uh, you get to a point where you can't please anyone. And I think I am happy that the Arkham series is just gone. Like, that's it. It's done. Rockstar can make more Batman games. Like, they're making that Suicide Squad game, but it's not yeah. going to be an Arkham game. And I think that that's probably the best way to do it. Because if they were to expand on the series, they would eventually get as divided as Assassin's Creed, where Assassin's Creed Valhalla... Um, I saw it was praised a lot for its story and that it's going back to its roots in a way. Um, but for me personally, as someone who's played all of the, uh, when I say go back to its roots, I don't mean like all the way, but I mean like they brought back the hidden blade. There's actual assassins in the game and people praise it for that. But for me, I mean, as someone who's played the series almost since the beginning, like since Assassin's Creed two onward, it's like I've seen assassins versus Templars um and valhalla is basically just doing that same conflict of course under different names um they're now the hidden ones versus the um order of the ancients and it's like it's the same shit they're spouting the same ideas (laughs) it's just origins man it's just origins man they just redid origins pretty much with the yeah and it's like so story-wise it's like yeah is it good yes is it good the 11th time in a row not really like it's 
I, I'd like to see something new. I'd rather them try something new and fail than do the same thing again, but at the same quality. I, I agree. I think the issue is they did that and it didn't work out. So they did that yeah. with Unity where they were like, okay, here's time for something completely different. And they fucked it up because there was too much pressure on them to release it when it wasn't ready because shareholders and the shareholders freaked out because they lost a ton of money and then they're like okay never try anything new ever again just try and make the witcher 3 that game sold well and that seems to me to be their approach now is like let's just be let's be a combination of like the witcher 3 shadow of uh mordor and and uh assassin's creed and let's just do that until we work out what we want to do and i'm fine with that but i think i think when it to circle back to the arkham stuff i think the point you made there that is interesting to me, which is them taking a risk versus just retreading something that's been done previously. And the thing that made Arkham Asylum and Arkham City really truly good is that both in the gameplay and, and whether or not you agree with some of the story choices in City, which a lot of people are kind of iffy on, um, particularly structurally, it's quite weird. Um, at least everything there is like they're trying something new. Like there's a lot of big swings in that um, story that are really interesting. Like, in particular, you know, Batman kind of brutalizing Freeze repeatedly. Really interesting to me. Like, it, it kind of takes that character uh, of Bruce Wayne and really, like, pushes him in a way um, that, that I've just, like, I, it, it felt very fresh to me because they did yeah. take those risks. Even if those risks didn't pay off, at least they were trying. And I, I think that's maybe where I feel with Arkham Knight... They, they lost some of their, their teeth in that, in that sense. So when you ask if I want to see a new one, the answer is yes, but only if they had a fresh, interesting idea that was worthy of doing. Yeah. Like, like for instance, like that, the, that concept art that we saw, which is like, you know, the kind of more post-apocalyptic style Gotham. I just think that'd yeah. be cool because it sounds different and interesting. Um, yeah. You know, you could kind of go down the route of like, uh, of, you know, in Zack Snyder's Justice League, or I think it's BVS even, you get those flash forwards to like, you know, Batman in, in Apocalypse and it looks cool, man. I'm like, that looks fun. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I'm not against them trying something different. I think the worst thing they could do is be like, okay, it's a wait five years and do like a, a reboot, you know, and be like, this yeah. one's just called Arkham, you know, Batman Arkham or something. Because um, that's going to happen eventually. But And you mentioned that, um, you know, City kind of did something different with its storytelling. And I, I want to clarify that, you know, while we're just sitting here basically sucking off City, um, <laughs> City also took, I swear to God, everything from Asylum and just did it again, but better. Yeah, and like I really appreciate that. So it's like, it's not that I don't like seeing the same idea done twice. It's just I don't like seeing the same idea done twice at the exact same level of quality and at the exact same depth. Because City is literally Asylum, but just way better. Yeah. And that's not to say Asylum was bad, but you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah, well, like, it's and, Asylum. It's it's like with every studio that I mean, it was that first big title, really. Yeah, you know, it was they were finding the feet. They were kind of you know tailoring their version of the Unreal Engine. Um, yeah, I completely agree. Um, that's enough praise for City, I'm sure. Um, yeah. I will just I will read one more thing from it, and then we'll take a quick break and come back. Um, just want to let you know that this is one of my favorite things ever, which is um, it's from the Australian official PlayStation magazine, which gave this game a perfect score of ten. Um, I remember reading this when it came out, uh, and there's a quote that I want to read you from it, which is um, the game is quote. Not only the best superhero game ever made, it's one of the best games ever made. It brings the Caped Crusaders world to life better than any comic, movie, or television show before it. End quote. 
the reason I read you that quote is I think it's really important before we kind of duck away for our break and then come back to talk about um, the the road into Arkham Knight is that Arkham City was like this was as far as sophomore hits go. This was the home run, right? Yeah. They were looking to secure their position in the industry, and they literally like this is they've hit every single target they need to with this. They've exceeded Warner Brothers' expectations. They've exceeded everyone's expectations, to be completely honest. Um, and where and also they one thing that they did really well at the time is they were very 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 supportive of content creators who um, they they sent out all of these early codes for Arkham City um, to YouTubers um, and people like that and they let them play it early and showcase the game early and it gave this level of confidence for the product that otherwise wouldn't have been present. Um, now we have Cyberpunk <laughs> where reviewers are not allowed to use their own footage. Yep. <laughs> Let's not even... Let's talk about that more in part two, because that is going to... Yeah. Boy. Um, yeah. It, but, it, uh, but... I like that uh, quote they, a lot. Sorry. Hmm. But, yeah, yeah I, I was just saying, I like that quote a lot, because I think we've talked a lot about um, how well it blended the comic Batman with, like, this Arkham Batman, and how it's such a good superhero game, especially when superhero games were just not a very um, strong subgenre at the time. I mean, like you said, there's not a lot of good superman games i can't even think of one uh, i can only think of maybe like four or five good spider-man games at that time mm-hmm. um and so i think it's important to also remember that like this is not only a really good superhero game but it's just a really good video game in general yeah. and it's like even someone like myself whose only exposure to the character was asylum and the movies and it's like i don't know who dr strange is i barely know who um mr freeze is it's like I was still able to enjoy it and it was still really just an awesome time. Even if you, for, for both people who love the comics and people who are a huge fan and people who are just kind of new to the series. Absolutely. And I think that's the difference is it made people into Batman fans as well. This is like DC's best case scenario. Um, especially with Chris Nolan pumping out his dark Knight trilogy around the same time. This is like peak DC hitting their stride, it's the right era for it. Um, it's just working really well. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break. Um, and when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about what the, the next... They have to make this big decision, right? They Basically what happened was Warner Brothers and Edios um, had just been happy for the studio to truck along. They just kind of left Rocksteady to their own devices. Um, but the outrageous critical and particularly commercial success of Arkham City uh, pricked their ears. Um, suddenly they smelled franchise potential. They sort of went, okay, this this could be, this could be big, um, and so as Arkham City hit the shelves, Rocksteady looked um, within their ranks, and they had a decision to make. So, we'll take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about what exactly that decision was, and how it affected uh, the sequel they were going to start developing, Arkham Knight. So, enjoy whatever product it is you're about to hear an advertisement for. Go and purchase it if you like. If you don't like, we'll be right back. We'll be talking about. We'll be talking about the controversial shit that's about to go down at Rocksteady um, and some of the drama that led to the development of Arkham Knight. So we'll see you guys in off, after, after these good products. Hey guys, this video is sponsored by the Maynard Trig series. That is my novel series. It's kind of a low sci-fi fantasy uh, coming-of-age story. And this episode specifically is brought to you by the sequel, Maynard Trigg and the City of Whispers. It is the explosive sequel to the original story and follows our heroes after the events of the first book. If you enjoyed the first one or you like the kinds of stories that we talk about and the way we tell them, I guarantee 
you'll like these stories. Head to manartrig.com to find out more and grab your copy today. Welcome back to the program. I um, hope you enjoyed them products. Um, and if you bought them, good for you. Uh, so with their sophomore efforts so wildly successful, uh, the expectations on Rocksteady were, as you can imagine, massive. Um, they hadn't even started talking about a sequel and it was already just, there was a lot of opinions being thrown around, is the impression I get. Uh, so sometime around uh, 2012, uh, Warner Brothers and Rocksteady, uh, they, they knew they wanted to make a sequel to Arkham City, but they had no idea what that might look like, no idea how to approach it, no idea when they were going to do this, right? And this, this uncertainty, um, I, I, can't, I can't work out why this is the case. Um, it seems to me that, that it would have made sense for them to just immediately like, launch into making a sequel. Part of the reason they didn't is that they knew the new consoles were coming out soon. So they knew that in about two to three years, they would have the new consoles dropping. Um, and they sort of, they kind of were, oh, do we do it on the new platform? Do we do it on the old one? What do we do here? Um, and so around 2012, with this uncertainty, um, Warner Brothers and Rocksteady suggest to Paul Dini that he should seek other work in the meantime. They're like, listen, we don't know what we're doing see if you can get some work don't rely we're not going to start making a sequel straight away um so sorry you, you said they didn't know what they wanted to do with the sequel yeah and like they, they didn't they, know story-wise they i think they had an idea story-wise they didn't know what they wanted okay. to do technological wise they didn't know if they wanted to start developing it for the current gen which was the 360 um, gotcha. or for the next ones which is you know the xbox one and the, and the playstation 4 yeah because um, i know um hush was teased at the end of uh well not the end of arkham city but during a side quest in arkham city he yeah. was kind of teased that he would be returning. In, yeah, so. in, in the same way that with, with City and Asylum, they knew that they had a lot of threads they were going to pull through narratively. Gotcha. Um, it was more, more from a technological perspective and a, mm. a project planning perspective. They just weren't really sure what their plan was. Gotcha. Um, and so they sort of... Yeah, I, I, I've done a lot of digging on this and I couldn't really find anything substantial, but they basically tap Paul Dini on the shoulder and they just say, look, man, just find something else in the meantime. And I can't tell if that's them being like find something else but not bringing you back or if that's them being like we just it's a really uncertain future um i couldn't verify either way so at this maybe point, they we'll were trying it. to make it as um maybe they were trying to make it as i guess um ambiguous as possible that's my impression um as always is the case on this show when video game studios part ways with employees or freelancers or anyone critical to their projects the more silence there is the larger it speaks to what happened um i couldn't find any verification that rocksteady and dini had a falling out um nor did dini have any issues with dc he, he kept working with them and wrote a handful of batman books after that um he did though pivot to writing ultimate spider-man and hulk and the agents of smash pretty soon afterwards um and there's some speculation that him signing this work influenced rocksteady and dc's decision um, but this feels more like pure speculation to me that the more I've kind of looked into it, more than likely what the impression I've got is, is they didn't really have a timeline. Dini had to find work. He found some stuff uh, and then committed and, and kind of couldn't come back. Um, that's generally the accepted narrative. There is an alternative, which we'll talk about in a second, but, but for the most part, I'm willing to believe that was what happened. But okay. regardless, Paul Dini departs the Arkham franchise at this stage. Um, which leaves a pretty big hole in their sort of critical structure, right? This is the guy who was so instrumental in helping them adapt 
all of these ideas to the game and he just had this like vision of comics and this knowledge that we've talked about um and so instead rocksteady lent on sefton hill and ian ball uh who started working with martin lancaster and jeff johns as consultants for the story now this is before they've decided how they're going to make it they're still just in the pitching stage right so hill and ball pitched their idea for arkham knight to warner brothers which is this next gen kind of physics heavy showcase that would cover the entirety of gotham not just one area and Warner Brothers agreed with this vision, um, but pointed out that three years would be too long between games after the huge success of City. Um, they didn't just want to let the ball drop. So it was that uh, Warner Brothers Montreal began development on Arkham Origins, a prequel to Asylum, which explored Batman's early career. Now, without Dini's involvement uh, in either project, Origins was received relatively well, but generally overlooked. Um, most people said that it was perfectly fine. Um, the gameplay offered little way, um, it, it sort of evolutionary-wise, which is kind of the same. Um, and it was largely a limitation of being a sequel, uh, sorry, being a prequel and also being on the same engine as City. Yeah, so and that's... Um, and that kind of speaks to what we mentioned before on how, um, you know, the the big thing for City that a lot of people, including myself, liked was that it improved on everything from um, Arkham Asylum, but it seemed mm-hmm. like Origins kind of had that issue of, was it good yeah was it good a second time around uh it's like yeah. it's like okay yeah this is good stuff but we've we've had it now for the second time so i think that's what kind of held it back most if anything uh but i i think at least it had a unique story yeah that's it and they they went for something um and they kind of swung at it and to what extent it worked your mileage is going to vary but you know it, it was enough to tie over most fans but critically for warner brothers it kept the money flowing they made enough from City, but for them, it was now it was about, okay, well, how do we consistently generate revenue from this? Um, again, like we said earlier, they saw that franchise potential and they weren't willing to let it go just yet. Um, it did, however, stoke even more interest in the next mainline game. People were curious to see what Rocksteady would do. Um, so something I always do for these scripts and, and this podcast is whenever a new name comes up, I tend to do like a, I do a deep dive into that person. A, because I, it's good to help if the context of knowing that person's career and how they slot into the project we're discussing, but also in case there's anything that's really interesting that kind of comes up. So I'm going to talk to you about Jeff Johns for a minute. Um, and I mentioned earlier that Johns was brought on to consult with Arkham Knight, but that's not really the full story of him coming onto the project and Dini leaving. So at the time of Arkham Knight's production, Jeff Johns was the chief creative officer of DC Entertainment. And very recently, like very recently um, at the time. And Johns has a storied career. Um, it's pretty similar to Dini's in some ways, actually. Um, but where Dini worked primarily on animation, uh, Johns worked far more on television and film. Uh, he was yeah. involved in projects like Smallville, The Flash, and Titans. Um, he also did some bad ones. Uh, he produced uh, Green Lantern. Um, he, yeah. He, oh, uh, wow. <laughs> He was a, is a primary creative lead on 2017's Justice League um, and is very unfortunately credited uh, for writing the screenplay of Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, but Jones did like a lot of amazing stuff too. Uh, he collaborated on Batman uh, Earth One. Uh, he instituted the New 52, um, which was sort of the, the relaunch of the DC franchise, um, a precursor to the Far Better Rebirth series, and generally helped reshape the modern era of DC and DC Comics. For the most part, Johns is, uh, is credited with the introduction um, of... So he, he's the guy who 
comes onto these properties and tries to like tie them into the larger universe, wants them to feel part of something, right? Mm. Um, you know, he introduced the, the Legion of Superheroes in Smallville um, and was an advocate for driving that series toward opening up its universe as, as it went on into its later seasons. My point ultimately here is that Rocksteady uh, brought on brought on the guy uh, famous for wanting to make things interconnected um, and he was really invested in constructing these like multi-layered worlds where you kind of have to read all the issues to to really get the full picture um, but I it's hard to tell if they brought him on or if he went well I'm the I'm the chief creative officer this thing is going to make us a lot of money I'm getting involved Deanie's out I'm in yeah. that's the other narrative here that there's potential um, as to how that went down to what extent that's likely I mean that shit happens a lot when someone comes in. You know, he's reshaping the his his team and, and, and he's kind of reshaping their priorities. So it seems to me and and would make logical sense that he's come on as the chief creative officer. Um, you know, he doesn't want this legacy stuff tying them down. It's like, okay, this is my ship now. We're going to do this this my way. Um, whether or not that's the case, hard to say. Regardless, we reach the development of Arkham Knight. And... Uh, there's some leaks and stuff that I won't get too much into. Um, but the first trailer released on the 4th of March 2014 and sets up the game's premise. Uh, Scarecrow has taken over Gotham and we see this Batman who is at the apex of, of his career and, and must kind of go out and stop him. And, and from this first glimpse, it's clear that tonally this is a completely different product, right? It's far more somber. It's far more serious. Um, the trailer features uh, a voiceover of Thomas Wayne reading um, his last will and testament to his son which is already kind of a dark place to start. Yeah. Next episode, we'll be talking about the game itself in complete detail. We'll step through the basic story beats um, to understand what's going on, uh, to understand what's working and what isn't. We'll talk about the gameplay. We'll talk about the themes. But before we wrap up and move into part two, uh, we need to talk about the game's release. Um, so I want to silo this to the end of this part because I don't necessarily think it should impact a discussion of the final product. Um, for those unaware, Arkham Knight released on the on the 25th of June 2015 for PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. It was perfect, and everybody loved it, and nothing went wrong the whole time. Nope. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, because it released on PC, and it didn't work, and still doesn't. Um, it still doesn't? It's not really, no. Oh, um, man. I was playing it this week in, in research for this, and still got some issues, man. Uh, wow. I, I played the game the night of its release at midnight, uh, on my on my brand new GTX 970 graphics card, top of the line baby, and boy was this video game fucking broken. Uh, I'm not a big like frame rate guy or like a graphics. I'm not even like a real gamer uh, to be honest. If the game looks and runs okay, I'm pretty I'm I'm cool with it, you know. Yeah. But um, the PC release just like didn't really like work. It's it's really hard to explain the experience of it. Um, I'll pop saw... up some footage. But. Yeah, I saw. Uh, I remember because one of the first things I saw for Arkham Knight was a um, angry rant from Angry Joe um, about the PC yeah, nice. uh, port of the game, and that gave me a pretty good idea. Uh, I, I heard it crashed a ton, graphical yeah. errors everywhere, things just wouldn't work. Yeah, and yeah, the physics. It was a lot of like physics weird stuff where like physics particles would frequently yeah as you said cause the game to crash um or would just like get out of sync with the rest of the game and do really weird shit that broke it um there was a particular glitch which basically made the game unplayable where as you were gliding um batman would sort of constantly be dipping and diving and it couldn't really glide it was very weird um and uh warner brothers actually suspended the sales 
of the Windows version uh, so they could fix the issues and offered refunds. Um, three days later, they dropped a patch which solved a lot of the actual hard crashing, um, but didn't address any of the performance problems. Um, to make things worse, uh, it turns out at the time since that Warner Brothers knew about these problems well ahead of the release. Uh, so I'm going to read you a quote from Attack of the Fanboy um, in some of their discovery around what went wrong with Arkham Knight. Uh, quote, According to Batman Arkham Knight's credits, Iron Galaxy Studios was in charge of additional engineering and PC support for Batman Arkham Knight. Under this section, only 12 team members are listed which is hard to believe for a full PC version of a game that was supposed to be alongside the console versions. With the launch console's troubles so far, this seems to have been almost an afterthought with the outsourcing of this version." End quote. So they get an independent team to come in that's far too small, they under-resource them, and they're shocked when it doesn't work. Uh, now, there is a solution to this, obviously, which is you just delay the PC release. Um, this is what Rockstar did with... Grand Theft Auto V and yep. with Red Dead Redemption 2, they are famous for... I mean, obviously for them, there's a commercial motivator too because it means that we'll all buy it a second time. But also, it, it means that the game comes out and it actually works and it's pretty polished. Um, they had some hitches with Red Dead 2, but for the most part, this is how game developers should be approaching these ports if they're not sort of built for PC. Yeah. Um, now, as time went on, different testers and people came out of the woodwork. Um, and speaking with Kotaku, um, I'll just read you a quote here. Um... I will say that it's pretty rich for Warner Brothers to act like they had no idea the game was in such a horrible state, said one quality assurance tester who worked on the game for years. It's been like this for months, and all the problems we see now were the exact same, unchanged, almost a year ago. Uh, and then continuing the article, uh, two sources requesting anonymity to avoid jeopardizing their careers spoke with Kutaku over the past week in the hopes of explaining how broken the PC version of Arkham Knight made it out the door. That's how you know both- it's bad. When they don't don't want to put their name to it, that's... Dude, uh, that's how you know, man. They both said that Warner Brothers was aware of many issues facing Arkham Knight on PC and said that the publisher chose to ship the game regardless, not to maniacally screw over customers, but because they believed it was good enough. End quote. Wow. It's just... It's it's incredible to me. Like, Warner Brothers just didn't give a fuck. They were like, yeah, whatever. funny? That completely reminds me of when I uh, worked at a grocery store and I was stocking shelves and I'm pulling these bananas out of a box and I'm throwing them on the shelf. And I get this one. It is like, it's got mold on it. Mm-hmm. And so I tell the manager, I'm like, hey, what should I do with this one? This batch has mold all over it. He's like, oh, fuck it. Put it on there. Somebody's going to buy it. <laughs> and it just reminds me of that. Of that, He just thought like, yeah, it's fine. Fuck it. And that's just it. the same thing. Those nerds Go will buy it. it. Yeah. Shit. Like, yeah. Oh, what a choice. God. Imagine knowing how bad it was and then just doing it anyway. Yeah, just selling it. And look, we can only really speculate, but in the same Kotaku article, there is some peripheral information um, that might explain why this happened the way it did. Um, And this maybe speaks to, again, Jeff Johns being on the project of Paul Dini Not. So, quote, One unexpected problem, the game's secretive story. Rocksteady was deeply afraid of plot revelations being leaked ahead of release, said the same source. So traditional PC testing firms that are used to stress test games on different hardware configurations, one of PC's biggest hurdles, were avoided. From what I'm told, this is not uncommon practice for major video games with story-heavy elements, end quote. So in order to not have the story leaked, they chose not to test their PC version, basically. Oh, man. Which is, like, super cool. Um... (laughs) It's just like, because the, obviously the biggest hurdle, just a bit of behind baseball, the biggest hurdle for PC game development, as it's been explained to me from um, the game developers I know, is that 
it's not the getting it, it you can get it running on most things it's the, the the sheer number of different hardware configurations mean that you have to build in really really robust kind of foundations for this stuff like it's a lot of reworking a lot of your kind of base code to make sure that it's going to operate on anything um and on with you know x amount of resources or x, x types of resources yeah. um and, and and that's why you hire these firms that can test on a huge array of different configurations of platforms and it, it lets you make decisions like what are our minimum recommended specs and, and information like that um but this decision in my opinion is hubris in every single form it's the arrogance to assume that your story is so good that it's worth risking a third of your consumers receiving an unplayable copy of your product oh man um it legitimately took months for the pc port to become usable but even today it still runs like absolute dog shit um, and sometimes doesn't work. I can get 90 frames a second, but there's still the occasional frame hitch, um, complete freeze up, um, all the weird desynchronization of the, the physics um, within the game's engine. Certain areas totally tank the frame rate for absolutely no reason. Like they're not hyper dense or anything, they just do. Um, while some of the most graphically dense moments of the story run at like a buttery smooth 120 frames, um, it's just built on a faulty foundation. But despite these issues, the game's 20-something hours of gameplay are still some of the most fascinating, engaging, best-looking time that you can spend in Gotham. So next episode, we're going to tackle the game, chat through it beat by beat, and pick apart what's going on, what's working, and what it's all really about. Uh, given the game's themes, it's ever more complicated that Deanie, the man responsible for setting up the world of Arkham, was not a part of this game. That Paul Deanie left, uh, and his legacy was the Joker's death, Makes me wonder, does Arkham Knight reimagine and re-evolve or just force life back into a story that had already been uh, kind of concluded by Dini? Um, so for now, I'll leave you with this, which is a quote from Simon Miller in writing for Vice Games back in 2016 uh, before, they became, uh, before Waypoint took over. Uh, and Simon says, quote, The ultimate praise, however, even with the countless missions, thugs to punch in the face, and iconic villains to track down, is that there is as much to take away from the Arkhamverse simply by exploring what it has to offer. A simulator by any other name, each version of Gotham can be delved into as a spectacular, holding a sense of fascination and entertainment that most games struggle to achieve at all. Rocksteady has proven time and time again that they are world-building extraordinaires. The fact that they managed to do that while dealing with some something truly as special as Batman is just the icing on the cake. End quote. I think that's exactly right. It's that they are so good, and it just happened to be Batman. Well, look, that's 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 part one um, wrapped up in a nice little bow. We've got to the we've got to the end of the road. We've got to Arkham Knight. We're gonna gonna get really stuck into it next time. Is there anything that, that that you want to plug? Where can people find you on the internet? Um, just like my channel, you can just find it. It's uh, that boy Aqua. I just review games. I, I yeah. Don't come to me uh, looking for a critic though, because I'm not very. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't say I'm very. Um, formal in my reviews i more just kind of talk about what i like and don't like in probably too much detail mm -hmm. that's yeah. that's look that's the way to do it i don't know any other way yeah um i mean and you've look you've, you've got a video on arkham knight you've got one on city and asylum have you covered origins yet yeah you have haven't yeah you? i covered origins um i'm probably gonna i wouldn't say i have a video on asylum because my video on asylum is really bad that's when i first started <laughs> don't watch making, that like, one then so I'm yeah. probably going to redo that one at some point. So there will be something like that. I have like, and I have uh, the season pass for Arkham Origins and Arkham Knight reviewed as well. Mm -hmm. um, and if you guys are interested in any Assassin's Creed stuff, I've reviewed like, I think half of the series by now. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah, definitely go you, check it out. Highly and I appreciate you for, for having me on the show. 
It's been it's cool. been my pleasure. It's been my pleasure. I'm I'm very excited for part two. We can get real nerdy and talk about video games in too much oh, detail, yeah. which is what we do best here. Um, if you want to find us, we're zero indent everywhere. Um, trying to think what else I even need to plug. This is it's hard because I don't have that many projects at the moment. Um, you can buy my books at maynardtrig.com if if you like the way that we talk about stuff and you like the kind of stories we discuss. Chances are you'll like that series. Um, otherwise, you can follow me on Twitter at DCMIHatePi, and I, I think that's pretty much it. Um, otherwise, we'll see you guys in part two for, for another uh, exciting bout of, of some Batman discussions. We'll catch you guys then. <laughs>